Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast today. We're entering into the Advent season through the book of Luke as we see the birth of Jesus and his childhood years. We're really excited to share that with you and hope that this season will be enveloped by remembering Jesus coming to be with us. We'd also want to invite you to partner with us financially. We have a few missionaries that you can find on our website that have really blessed our church by doing college ministry. And also we have seminarians that we want to invite our listeners to support as well. We're starting a church residency program, praying to uh, see God raise up the next generation of pastors at Renew Church. You can find all that information at the description section. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, my name is Dave Jong. I want to welcome you to Renew Church. If I could get your attention, that would be great. All right, so how many of you here this morning have ever struggled with doubt in your life? Can I get a show of hands? Whoa, what? So many unspiritual people here. I can't believe it. No, I'm just joking. No, but thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest about that. Hey, have you ever struggled with doubt as a Christian? Maybe some idea was presented to you, an academic or a social or a cultural idea that maybe inflamed your heart and excited your mind, but it ran contrary to your Christian faith. And you can feel conflicted and confused and uh, perplexed, and you can struggle with doubt. Or maybe an unexpected circumstance comes barreling into your life and stops you in your tracks. A sudden tragedy or catastrophe enters without warning, and you feel the overwhelming nature of the situation, and doubt starts to creep in. Or maybe it's a lingering problem that won't go away, and you've prayed and you've prayed, and this issue you would hope would pass, but it continues without any real resolution, and so you feel the disillusioning silence of God, and you struggle with doubt. A myriad of feelings and emotions and thoughts and ideas race through your hearts and minds, and it leaves you doubting the Lord in some way, shape, or form. When you struggle with doubt as a Christian, you undoubtedly feel like a failure. You feel like you weren't strong enough spiritually to handle the doubt, or you weren't wise enough. You didn't have enough insight to deflect that doubt, or you weren't faithful enough. You weren't committed enough. It should be, your commitment should be like a bulletproof uh, vest that the doubts would bounce off you, but maybe you're a deficient disciple and it shames you. And you know what can happen is you can beat yourself up over this, but when the New Testament presents doubt in the Bible, wherever it comes up in the Gospels or the Epistles, every time it refers to believers, not unbelievers. The New Testament scriptures point out that doubt is in reference to those who are saved, to those who are born again. Doubt comes to those who are regenerate and redeemed. It's in reference to those who are in God's family. They're the ones who doubt. So doubt is a reality that is true to every child of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus continually exhorts his disciples over and over again in the Gospels not to doubt. Matthew 14, 31 says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
Matthew 21 and verse 21 says, Truly I tell you, if you believe and not doubt. Mark 11, 23, uh, If anyone does not doubt but believes. Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, How foolish and how slow of heart to doubt. John chapter 20 and verse 27, Stop doubting and believe. So why address doubt over and over and over again? It's because disciples have a tendency to doubt. You see, doubt is something that occurs in the life of every believer at one time or another. And this morning, I want to address the area of doubt highlighted in our study of John the Baptist. Okay? So what we're going to do is we are going to look at uh, Luke's 3. Can, can we put that up? Luke 3 and Luke 7. And we're going to study about this amazing saint, John the Baptist. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7 at first this morning. And it's going to be a lengthy uh, piece of scripture, so we're going to look at that. Okay, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 16. It says, And they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Verse 17, This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Verse 22, So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed in the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Verse 26. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is not one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29. And all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. We're going to unpack this idea. But in dealing with doubt, we want to look at the first point. In dealing with doubt, number one, We want to see the truth about doubt. The truth about doubt. Verse 17, it says, News about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And John's disciples told John about all these things. So, Jesus is ministering to the multitudes that are going to see him. He is preaching and teaching and he's exercising demons. And everyone is talking about him. And so, John's disciples are informing John about Jesus' ministry And here, John the Baptist responds in a way that we might find surprising. Verse 18, he says this. Calling the two, John sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, 
or should we expect someone else? Now think about this. He's saying, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Stop and think about who is saying this. It's John the Baptist. If there was ever a man you did not expect to say this, it was this man. I want to give you some context in Luke chapter 3. If you don't know uh, much about John the Baptist, let's look in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3. Can we put that up? It said, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. Drop down to verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John the Baptist was the voice in the wilderness that was prophesied. And his whole life had been prepared to meet Jesus, the prophesied Messiah. We're, we're trying all these. Thank you. Might just be my voice that cracks. Okay. Here, John the Baptist was that prophetic groomsman. And his whole purpose was to point everyone to the groom, to Jesus the Messiah. And can I share with you that John had confidently and faithfully announced that Jesus is the Messiah who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He had done this his whole life. And so it's surprising that what he confidently proclaimed to others, now he asks, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Now, what happened? Why one moment he's confidently, aggressively preaching and pointing to Jesus, and the next moment he asks this question, what happened? Well, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 20, can we put this up? There are six words that explain what happened. It says here that Herod locked John up in prison. These six words explain John's doubt. Listen, the truth about doubt is that doubt is activated by problems. Problems activate our doubt. Jesus tells us in John 16, in this world you'll have problems. Problems come up as we live our lives in this fallen world. And with problems comes our tendency to doubt. You see, problems become a catalyst for doubt. And here John's problem was prison. I want you to see three, three uh, points for this. I want you to notice, number one, the problem of persecution. Okay? John the Baptist was hugely significant at this time. It was over 400 years since Israel had heard from a prophet. That meant that God had been silent for 400 years. Malachi, the last prophet, had foretold that a messenger prophet would come and herald Messiah's arrival. And so John bursts onto the scene and does everything that Malachi prophesied. He even looked like a prophet. And John the Baptist instantly became a rock star. People came from everywhere to hear him. People were transformed by his message of repentance. 
John became a national celebrity overnight. He was a national treasure in Israel. He was the prophet that was sent by God. And John the Baptist's prophetic purpose was to call people to repentance. And he boldly, aggressively called out sin wherever he saw it. He confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He confronted the tax collectors and soldiers. He confronted the aristocrat and the commoner alike. But here's the issue. As he confronts the need for repentance, Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee. And let me tell you a TMZ about Herod Antipas. He had seduced his brother Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias, and he stole her away to be his own wife. He divorced his wife so that he could be with his brother Philip's wife. But what made it really TMZ was that she was his own niece. So he had married his niece, or he had uh, shacked up with her. So John the Baptist would not stand for it. He publicly publicly condemned him as an adulterer and commanded him to repent. Which, when Herod heard this, he immediately put John in prison. Now imagine this. He's doing what he's, doing what, uh, he's called to do. He's doing everything right. He's faithful to God's calling. And how is he repaid? He's thrown in a dungeon. Talk about unfair. John could have wondered, does it pay to obey? I mean, does it pay to obey God? Here I am, I'm called to this, and I'm thrown in prison. You see, doubt can creep up in times of persecution. That is why Jesus trains his disciples for gospel work. In Matthew 10, he tells them, hey, you're going to be brought before councils. You're going to be flogged and beaten. Verse 18, you're going to be handed over to governors and kings. Verse 21, your people in your own family will betray you. Verse 22, you'll be hated by this world. Verse 23, you'll be hunted. You'll be on the run. Verse 28, you'll be killed. Why does he say this to the disciples? To prepare them for the reality of persecution in their lives. And the disciples could have wondered as Jesus said all these things, just like John, does it pay to obey? Does it pay to obey God? And today, we may be called upon to take a stand for Jesus, to reject the ideas and practices that are embraced in our culture. And don't be surprised if you're labeled a bigot or a hater or a fool or even an enemy. And the question we might wrestle with, just like John, just like the disciples, is does it pay to obey? Here I'm doing everything right. I'm faithful to God's calling. Does he see me? Will God save me? This is so unfair, the things that I'm going through. And that could bring doubt, the problem of persecution. But not only that, the problem of pits. So Herod Antipas didn't put John the Baptist in just any prison. Herod put him in the most infamous dungeon designed for the most notorious offenders. Herod the Great, his ancestor, had built this uh, prison called the Macarus Prison. It was a fortress prison, but what was interesting about it was it wasn't just regular prison cells. It was made up of prison pits, deep, dark, narrow pits. And it was designed in the hottest part of Galilee so that this place was unbearable. It was unpleasant. You know, I was reading from a commentator, William Barclay, and he puts it so well. Let me read it to you. 
William Barclay comments and says this, John was a child of the open wilderness. All his life he lived in wide open spaces with the clean wind on his face and the spacious vault of sky for his roof. But now he's confined within the walls of an underground dungeon pit. For a man like John who never even lived in a house, this must have been for him an unbearable, excruciating agony. One moment, he's in wide open wildernesses. He's an REI guy. The next moment, he's thrown in a deep, narrow pit. Have you ever been in a proverbial pit? Pits are dark places where you can't see light at the end of the tunnel. Pits are so confusing. They're so perplexing. One moment you're healthy, the next moment you're diagnosed with cancer. One moment you're happy, the next moment there's a tragic loss of life uh, of one of your loved ones. One moment you're successful, the next moment you're fired from your job. One day, you have a normal life, and the next day, there's an overwhelming storm that came without warning. And you may say, God, how could, you, how could this be a part of your plan? Lord, how could this pit be a part of your will for my life? Have you ever been in a pit? Pits are also lonely places where you feel isolated and abandoned, where you pray and pray for deliverance only to feel the silence of God in your situation. And you might say, God, where are you in this tragedy? Lord, why did you allow this to happen? Lord, why won't you help me? Why won't you intervene in my time of need? Pits are dark places. Pits are lonely places. Pits are also painful places. In our text, John has been in this prison pit for a year and a half. You know what I found? And this is true of my personal life. I find that when difficulty occurs in my life, I have faith as long as it's temporary. As long as it's short, I have great faith. But what happens when pain lasts longer than you expect? What happens when our faith is tested over long, agonizing periods? You see, doubt creeps in from our inability to deal with overwhelming problems that we face. You see, problems activate doubt the problem of prisons and pits. But let's look at another one, the problem of perspective. Let's look in verse 18. And John's disciples told him all about these things, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So the Bible notes that John, in hearing about the deeds of Jesus, began to doubt. That Jesus' ministry caused John to doubt. You might say, well, how can that happen? Well, let me explain. I think this is really interesting. The popular understanding in Israel was that Messiah would come and immediately usher in his uh, kingdom, that the Messiah would overthrow the ungodly Roman regime, that he would judge all the evil that was in the world, that he would set up his earthly kingdom, and the eternal kingdom prophesied would come on earth. And John kind of says it in Luke chapter 3 and verse 17, right, of our text. He says that when Messiah comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When God comes, there's going to be fire. When God comes, there's going to be judgment. So the popular understanding of Israel and also of uh, John the Baptist was these things. And here's the problem. Jesus wasn't living up to that expectation. He wasn't. 
Can you imagine John's conversation with the disciples, with his disciples? Here the disciple comes and says, hey, John, how are you doing? How are you holding up in prison? And here John says, it's terrible. But at least I know Jesus is doing his ministry. He's becoming greater and greater. What's the news? Has he overthrown Rome yet? Has he set up that earthly kingdom of God? And his disciple says, well, no, not really. He's dining with tax collectors and sinners. He's healing people. He even healed the servant of a Roman centurion. He said that Roman centurion had greater faith than anyone in Israel. And, you know, he's talking with religious leaders like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And John probably stops and says, what? He hasn't judged or ruled or reigned yet? And the disciple says, no. As a matter of fact, he's not talking about burning chaff with unquenchable fire. No, he's talking about loving and forgiving one another. He says, turn the other cheek, even to the Romans. He says he hasn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And I'm sure when he hears this, John is thinking, did I get this wrong? Can he be the Messiah, or are we waiting for someone else? Here is the problem of John's limited perspective. Let me, let me ask this. Is Jesus the Messiah going to set up an earthly kingdom just like the prophets foretold? Is he going to do that? Well, yes, absolutely. Can I get an amen? Will Jesus judge the world? Will he make all things right? Will he usher in God's kingdom of peace and glory? Yes, absolutely. Can I get an amen? amen. But they didn't understand that Messiah had to first come as a suffering servant, as a sacrifice for sin, as a savior of both Jews and Gentiles, a savior of the whole world. You see, John forgot the prophecies of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 that it had to be fulfilled first of all. That Jesus had to wear a crown of thorns before wearing a crown of gold. That Jesus had to be raised up on a cross of wood before rising up on a throne of gold. And it's easy to criticize, well, he should have known that. I mean, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, he should have known. And we might say that, but hindsight is 2020. In reality, though, there's no way John could have known all that. As a matter of fact, the New Testament talks about how this plan was a mystery, that we have all the components of it, but it was still a mystery as it was unfolding. What does that tell us? That we as humans have a limited perspective, and that's our problem. Our problem is perspective. We don't know the beginning from the end. All we can see is what's in front of us. We can't see how everything fits, all the situations and all the circumstances. You see, this divine mosaic of God's story and plan, all we can see is a small patchwork piece of it. And we can be tempted because we know that small patchwork piece that we know God's plan and we know God's mind, when in reality, we don't. Because only he sees the beginning from the end. So when the Lord defies our expectations, when he challenges our perspective with something, we are tempted, just like John, to doubt him in our lives. The second point we want to look at, the problem to doubt, now the second one, the solution to doubt. I want to look at how Jesus responds to John's doubt. And I want you to notice he doesn't call him a failure. He doesn't say he's not spiritual enough. He doesn't rebuke him for his lack of commitment. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes on to say, and we just read it, all these glowing things about John. But here I want you to catch this in verse 21 through 23. 
Here's how Jesus responds to John's doubt. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What was Jesus telling John? He was telling him, I have a plan. I have a plan, John. You might not understand it. You might not see it all. But I am about my plan, and I've had this plan from the very beginning. I want you to notice that Jesus turns John back to the Old Testament scripture. And he references Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, and Isaiah 61, where he says the blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. These are all prophecies that Messiah was going to do, and Jesus is fulfilling them. You know what Jesus was telling John? Trust my plan. Trust me. You'll be blessed if you continue to walk with me and to trust me. You see, the most powerful tool we have in times of doubt is faith. It's biblical faith. Well, you might ask, what is biblical faith? Well, remember several weeks ago we studied the armor of God? I'm not going to go into a whole huge spiel on the armor of God, but remember when we talked about the shield of faith? Can we put that up? Remember that? We said that the shield of faith or biblical faith is not faith in faith. It's not faith in itself, right? It's not this world's idea of faith. I call it a Disney faith that tells us to take a leap in the dark, just believe and everything will go well. There's so many Disney songs like that, right? About just believing in belief. But that's not biblical faith because faith is only as good as its object. What is our shield? Well, we talked about it, and the Psalms gives us emphatic explanation. Psalm 3.3 says, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. Psalm 28 verse 7 says, the Lord is my shield, my heart trusts him. Psalm 33 and verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our shield. Uh, Psalm 84 and verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. You see, the object of our faith is God. He is our shield. So then what is biblical faith? Can we put this up? And if you're taking notes uh, of anything that I've said, take down this. Faith is a personal relationship with a personal God whereby we place our personal trust in him. When it comes to biblical faith, it's all personal. Let me kind of break this down. When we have biblical faith, we affirm our personal relationship with God. He is our loving father, and we are his adoring children. Another is that we acknowledge that we have a personal God. God is not just some force out there. He's not some deistic entity uh, uh, without personhood. He has character. He has attributes. He has desires. There's things he hates and there's things he loves. There's things he likes and there's things that he dislikes. He has a plan and he has a will. And we acknowledge that he is a personal God. So we affirm that personal relationship with God. We acknowledge his person and who he is. And because of that, we submit to him by placing our trust in who he is his character, his attributes, and in what he does, his will and his plan. Can I get an amen? That means 
that faith is that relationship whereby we trust him. And this personal trust dispels doubts in our lives. We may not know everything. We may not understand what's going on. But we have faith in God, in who he is, and in what he does. And that's enough for us. You see, the best verse, the best definition of the shield of faith is really Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know, um, starting January of 2022, I remember sitting in my living room uh, having my devotions, and God impressed upon me, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 make this the theme verse for this whole year. I want you to meditate on it. And at that time, I didn't really know why. I'm like, yeah, Lord, I'll make Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And so I memorized it. And then, Proverbs, and then 2022 became uh, one of the most difficult years for me in my life. I went through so many difficult trials, and I started to realize, oh, that's why you wanted me to really memorize and to make this my theme verse. And you know what? Starting January 2023, God hasn't changed the theme verse at all, which I'm a little bit afraid of, you know? <laughs> give, me, give me something better. Actually, that, I shouldn't say that. This is awesome. It's better. Okay. All right. But I'm like, give me something encouraging. But God is like, no, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And this is the same thing I'm going to meditate on this year. I don't know what's going to happen this year. But this verse is how I'm putting up that shield of faith. And this is what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Are you suffering doubt this morning? Is God asking you to trust him, to submit to him? Don't let doubt turn into unbelief, because doubt can lead to unbelief. Can I share with you, doubt is not a sin. It's just questions that you may have as you live life. Unresolved questions that you want answered and as you struggle with. So doubt is not a sin, but unbelief is a sin. And unbelief is very different from doubt because unbelief is allowing those doubts to turn you away from the Lord. It's allowing those doubts to keep you from a relationship with him. So instead of submitting to him, you decide to rebel against him. And that's something that a child of God should never do. So what is God trying to teach you in the area of problems? And what is he asking you to trust him? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for John the Baptist. What an amazing mentor he is in our lives. What an amazing mentor he is, because we go through the same things. This man of God exemplifies what every man and woman of God goes through at one time or another. And so, Lord, this year, this new year, 2023, what are you asking us to trust you in? We thank you for your love and your kindness we thank you for your invisible hand. Even though we may not see everything, we know that you're working all things for good because you love us. And we're called according to your purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen, amen. Thanks for listening. Since I have you here, I wanted to give you a few more resources and talk about how you can invest in our ministry. If you look at the description section of this podcast, we have a website for the church and would love to have you come visit us when you're in town. We're in Brea, California. We also have tax-deductible giving at Renew, and we would love for you to invest in our church and our seminarians 
as we have people coming in to become future missionaries and pastors at Renew. We want to train up the next generation of pastors to reach their generation for the Lord. There's also a few more resources. At the very bottom, I do a podcast with Roy Kim, who's an MFT. It's called The Same Boat, where we talk about issues from English ministries at immigrant Chinese churches to relationships and being single. I hope that you would enjoy this podcast with us as a way to talk off the pulpit and into our daily lives. And lastly, Nina and I wrote a children's book series called To Be. Helping kids integrate their faith with their occupation. And on that website, there's also the adulting journal. If you're in your 20s or 30s and you're going through transition in career, relationship, or just rethinking your spirituality, this is a great space for you to examine inward and find what God has written on your hearts and in your values. I hope that those resources uh, would connect with your heart, and that you would connect with us. God bless.